This morning we'll be looking at the second half of chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. I would ask that you would give close attention to the reading of the Word of God. This section of Acts is a bit of a bridge. It is, quite frankly, the kind of passage that if we were scurrying to read through the Bible in a year, we would read over quickly. We'd go from the very exciting passages of Acts 10 and 11 as Peter sees the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles, and we would be anxious to get to chapter 12 where we see persecution in the church. We see Peter rescued from prison. And here there is just a story of some regular folk in a regular church. But I think it has profound impact on the way we think about being a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is holy. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Beginning at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would show us all You would have us to know, that You would remind us that we are Your children and that we owe everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I have said, this is a bit of a transition passage. It's a passage that might be easy to glance over or read quickly, not to delve into. 
But I want you to think about this passage a bit differently than just a transition. I don't know if many of you have read the great novelist Charles Dickens. But I did in high school and in college. And the wonderful thing about a Dickens novel is that about three-quarters of the way through, it seems like almost every little detail that you read 200 pages earlier comes to some great significance. All these threads, it's like a great tapestry with threads running every which way, and they all come together at one point. That's a bit of what we're seeing here in the second half of Acts 11. There's a thread called Stephen, and a thread called Persecution, and a thread called Saul, and a thread called Barnabas, and a thread called the Gentiles, and a thread called the Church at Jerusalem, and they're all coming together here in the second half of Acts chapter 11. You see, Luke is a masterful writer. This is yet another reason to see the great truth, worth, and value of the Bible. And it shows the utter foolishness of anyone who would say that this was made up by dozens and dozens of writers of each book over long periods of time with redactors and editors, and it doesn't have any literary quality. Luke is a literary genius. He is bringing together all of these threads in a powerful picture of what the church is to look like. And so what I'd like us to see here in the second half of Acts chapter 11 is three things. First, I'd like us to see the church at Antioch in the hand of the Lord. It's important to remember that the church, both at Antioch and at Katy, is in the hand of the Lord. And then secondly, I would like us to see that this church is in need of encouragement. And so, if you are in need of encouragement this morning, you need not slink back in your chair. You need not think that you are odd or that you have failed. The church of Jesus Christ is always in need of encouragement. And then finally, we will see this church at Antioch as they are located in their community. Because the church exists not merely within its four walls, but outside of its four walls to change the character of the community around them. So in the hand of the Lord, in need of encouragement, and then finally, in their community. Let's begin now by looking at the church in the hand of the Lord. And I want us to see two simple points from this. First, the Lord started it. The Lord started this church. The Lord started this mission. And then secondly, we will see that the Lord blessed it. The Lord is the one who is in sovereign control of the church at Antioch. The Lord has started it. And in order to get you to understand this, let me give you just a bit of background about this place, Antioch. The first thing that you need to know is that Antioch is a bit confusing. You see, because... The great founder of the post-Alexandrian empire in Syria, Seleucus, who we've seen before in the Seleucid empire as we looked in Daniel, had a father named Antiochus. And you may recall that they did the naming convention where 
every other generation was Seleucus and Antiochus. Seleucus and Antiochus. So that means that in the days of the apostles, there were about ten Antiochs in this area. As they kept naming city after city after Antiochus. And many of us, when we think of Antioch, think of a city in the middle of the peninsula of Turkey, near Galatia. That's not this Antioch. That's Sidian Antioch. This is Antioch on the Orontes. You need to think about it as being just a little bit north of Damascus. It's in what we call Syria. And it is a major city. As a matter of fact, it is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There is Rome... There is Alexandria, and then there is Antioch. More than half a million people lived here. It was a large, well-connected, powerful city. As a matter of fact, it would be a center of Christianity for centuries after this point. There was a period of time in which the patriarch of Antioch was as powerful as the patriarch of Rome, also known as the Pope. This city was a large city. It was a powerful city. It was a city known for business. In that way, perhaps not unlike Houston. It was not an actual port city, but it was near a port city. And almost all of the trade that came from the eastern part of the empire on its way to Rome went through Antioch. It was a large, important, cosmopolitan city. There were large numbers of Jews, Greeks, people from the ancient Near East, Romans, veterans had settled here. It was a city with people of every stripe and nationality. It was also known for one other major distinctive. It was a filthy, rotten, disgusting, pagan city. It was so bad that the Romans complained that Rome had been made a sewer from the sewage that flowed down from Antioch. Now that's bad. When the Romans and all of their mess are calling you a bad influence. This is a large cosmopolitan pagan city. Don't forget that as we see the work of the church. That's the place And so God puts his people in the midst of this place. And who does he put? Well, first he puts those who are scattered about. Notice at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled to Antioch. Now you have to think back, perhaps flip back in your Bibles. We're going to go all the way back to chapter 8. You remember Stephen was executed. The persecution was ramped up in Jerusalem and the church had to flee. And so fearful men, women, and children ended up in Antioch. They were scattered. But part of that scattering, you will remember, was to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Antioch is one of those places. And so they show up in Antioch and they begin to tell about the Lord Jesus Christ. They begin to speak the word, Luke says. But he he gives us an interesting modifier. He says they spoke the word, but only to Jews. You see, they hadn't gotten with the program yet. They perhaps hadn't gotten message of Cornelius. 
It's very likely even that these events precede the events of Cornelius. And so fearfully, but yet effectively, they take the word out to the Jews. Now, what I want you to see in this is not just the people involved, but what I want you to see is the hand of God. How did they get there? Because of persecution. How did the persecution come about? Well, Stephen had boldly preached. How did Stephen have an opportunity to boldly preach? Because he had been chosen by the congregation. What made them choose? It was a circumstance that was brought about by the Lord himself. God was at work in each one of those instances. They are in Antioch as surely as if God had dropped a map from heaven and said, You are here, X, go there. God is the one who is putting them here. But it's not just the scattered who are out in Antioch as well. There are others who are more bold. There are some, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so they come and they are more bold. You can almost imagine the conversations that they would have before they would go out street preaching. Well, you know, this salvation's for the Jews, but, you know, the Old Testament talks about all people and all nations. You know, those Gentiles, are they got to be pretty miserable in the lives they lead. Maybe we should take Jesus to them. Oh, I don't know. Did we get permission from Jerusalem yet? What could they object to? How could anybody object to us telling people about Jesus? Let's go do it. And so they go. And so they go out and they speak about the Lord Jesus. And I want you to see here, this is a perfect example of how we can be contextual and remain faithfully biblical. You see, when we speak to people in their own context, often today, that is a synonym for watering down the truth of the Bible for speaking in stuttering tones, for halting, for leaving the harsh parts of the Bible out, for trying to bait and switch folks. But not these men. You see, they knew to speak about the Messiah would mean nothing to pagan Greeks. These Hellenists were Greeks who were pagans. They didn't know what a Messiah was. They weren't Jewish. But they knew what a Lord was. And they knew what a savior was. That had deep roots in their mythology. And so they come preaching Jesus not as Messiah by his title, but they come preaching him as Lord and Savior. Same thing. Same exact content. But just in a package that would be more readily understood. And this is a lesson for us. As we speak to those who are around us, let us never blunt the truth of the gospel. But let us never think that we must speak it in 17th century language or in the language of the Bible we happen to be holding in our hands using specific words and terms. We can speak the language of others and retain the full force of biblical truth. And that's what these men do. And God is at the beginning of it. When God is at the beginning of something, He will bless it. And that's what He does. His hand is upon these people, these men, as they go out and bring the gospel. Because you see, the Lord has ordained not only gospel ends, but He has also ordained gospel means. And so if we begin at the end, we know that 
Our Lord commanded each and every one of these folks, as He commands you and me, to tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in a nutshell, really what they are doing is fulfilling the commandment they got in Acts 1, verse 8. We'll see that over and over again through Acts. That they are to take the gospel, make disciples, that they are to preach Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it doesn't matter where the Lord takes you. There, you must preach Him and teach Him. I have to tell you, those of you that wonder what you would do if you were planted someplace else, I never dreamed ever in my life that I would end up in Houston. It never even crossed my mind as a possibility. There might be a better chance I would end up in Hawaii or California or some other foreign nation than Houston. But that's where the Lord has brought me. Perhaps He's brought you here as well and you wonder why. Perhaps He is leading you to a different neighborhood or a different suburb or perhaps even a different place. You need to know that as you go, you take Jesus with you, both in your heart to encourage you and in your mouth to profess. And God will bless that. We see that here, that Luke tells us explicitly, the hand of the Lord was with them. And this is an expression of the great power of God. It's the kind of language that we might call Exodus language. The power of God, by His mighty outstretched hands, smites the greatest empire in the world and says, let my people go. And no power, no wealth, No number of chariots, no scientific thought, no philosophy can stop him. When his hand is with his people, they are blessed and they are victorious. And so do not feel intimidated by men with series of letters after their names. Do not feel intimidated by highbrow philosophers. Do not feel intimidated by those who flash rolls of money. God is with His people. And His church will succeed because His hand is upon it. Because it is for His glory. That is our great hope. It is not in obtaining fame to use for Jesus' sake. Not in obtaining money to use for Jesus' sake. Not even in obtaining knowledge and wisdom to use for Jesus' sake. It is in having the power of the living God moving before us ordaining all things and equipping us to do His will. This is the hand of God. The problem for us is is that all too often, like it is here, this power is invisible. And if we are honest, we don't like the invisible power of God. We like to see visible things. We would love it if a lie-spewing mosque were flattened to the ground by an earthquake. We would love it if an atheistic philosopher, as he spews lies about Jesus Christ, suddenly lost his voice on Larry King. We would like to see things that are easy to understand, easy to grasp, but that is not how God works at all times. Sometimes He works by appearing in all His glory before Saul. Sometimes He works through men and women who were transplanted to a big city 
that they never knew. This is how God brings forth His kingdom. But we need to understand that we don't just sit back and wait for God to do things. I sometimes wonder if our reaction to unbiblical Arminianism, which seeks to line up all of the things in perfect harmony so that maybe God can have the opportunity to do things, if our false alternative is to sit around and say, okay, God, going to convert some people? Anytime now. I don't want to get in your way. Go right ahead. And we just sit and wait. Do you see the context of where God is actively at work? It's where the people are at work. They are out and about. They are teaching. They are preaching. They are evangelizing. They are helping. And God is at work in there. It's not they that are effective. It is God that is effective. But it is God who is effective as they are engaged. And that is because God ordains not only the ends, but also the means. And He commands us to read our Bibles, to know our Bibles, to tell of the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring cold water and food to others. He tells us that we are to be active with our faith. This is gospel means. And what this means for the 21st century American church is that there is absolutely no excuse for laziness. The work can't be too hard. The field cannot be too hard. You can't imagine a harder place to evangelize than Antioch. Your time of life can't be too difficult. These people were displaced and poor because of persecution. You see, there is no excuse for laziness in the kingdom of God. God is at work and He will be at work. And we need to be on board. Not because God needs us, but because we need God. And we need to see him at work in our lives and with others. Well, this is a church that is involved and is in the hand of the Lord. But it is not a perfect church. You can't find one. What's the old saying? The minute you find a perfect church and walk through the door, you've just spoiled it. And so this is a church that is in need of encouragement. They need to be helped here. They need to be encouraged to stand fast and they need to be encouraged to grow deep. First, let's look at what it means to stand fast. Now, this church is being effective. There are, the scripture tells us, a great number who believed and turned to the Lord. So, this is not some small uh, ripple. This is a gigantic tidal wave in Antioch. As a matter of fact, they're having so much effect, we'll see later, that they gain their own kind of title in Antioch. They're called Christians. And they're converting all kinds of folks and bringing them in and trying to do things. And word of it gets back to Jerusalem. Now, I imagine that several messages came back to Jerusalem, perhaps some positive, some negative, even as we see in the church today. Some, perhaps, would go to Jerusalem and say, you've got to see what's happening in Antioch. It's incredible. The Lord is working. And then perhaps the next day some would come back and say, you have got to see what is happening in Antioch. Gentiles all over the place. Nobody is circumcised. Nobody is memorizing 
the Old Testament prophets. Nobody is keeping kosher. You have got to do something about this, Peter. Well, no, you've, you've gone Gentile on us. James, James, please help us. And the church at Jerusalem, maybe with mixed motives, but sincerely desiring, I think, to see the work of God go forward, they send, they decide they need to send an emissary up to find out what's going on. Because word had reached them. And this is again where I want you to see the providence of God. Because as Bible-believing Christians, I hope and pray that the word luck never comes out of your mouth. Leave luck with the leprechaun and the cereal on Lucky Charms. Do not bring it into your thoughts about the Bible. Because it just so happens that they choose Barnabas. Now, if they had deliberated for a year and a half, like some Presbyterian committees, they could never have come up with a better man than Barnabas. He is absolutely, positively the perfect choice. He's a better choice than Peter. He's a better choice than John. He's a better choice than any of the apostles. He's not an apostle, but he's absolutely perfect. What do I mean by that? Well, Barnabas is a man who is completely trusted by the church at Jerusalem, isn't he? He's a matter of fact, he's so well trusted, we've seen, that when Barnabas said, hey... This Paul's all right. They said, well, I guess he must be. And they brought Paul in. They trusted Barnabas completely. Barnabas had been shown to have a generous spirit. You remember where we first meet Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. It's when he's selling property to give to the poor in the church. So he's trustworthy. He's generous. He's also, in the proper and biblical way, open-minded. He was the one who said, we better check this Paul out, give him a chance, let's hear his story. He was the one who was open to bringing Paul into the body of believers. And there's something else here that you might miss if you didn't look very closely. Look at verse 19, or excuse me, verse 20. Those who were bringing in the Hellenists, who were bringing in the Greeks came from where? Cyprus and Cyrene. And you might think, well, that's just in there because Luke wants me to trip over an ancient word. Turn back to Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Barnabas' name isn't even Barnabas. That's his nickname. We might today call him Barney. Acts 436 says, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of. So not only is Barnabas perfectly trusted by Jerusalem, who else is he perfectly trusted by? Those who are most active in the church in Antioch. We might even say, and I don't think it's a huge leap, that Barnabas may have been involved in converting some of these men. He might have been involved on Cyprus or as they had come to Jerusalem, speaking the same language. You know what that's like. You go someplace where there are thousands of people and you see someone who's from your hometown. Immediately you strike up a conversation. You immediately have something in common and can speak at ease. That's Barnabas. 
But it's not just the circumstances that make him the right character. We might even say this is almost a setup by God. Because you see, Luke tells us a bit about the man. He is a good man, a spiritual man, Luke tells us. And I want you to see the significance of this. Luke only uses the word good in connection with a man one other time. And it's in the Gospel of Luke. When you remember someone comes up to teacher to uh, Jesus and says, Good teacher. And Jesus says, Who do you call good? No one is good but God. Making the point that don't lightly throw around praise. So Luke knows what it is like here, and yet he gives the adjective good to Barnabas. Now, how can Barnabas be a good man? Isn't no one good but God? Well, that may be true, but Barnabas is good because of God. You see, Barnabas is a man who is full of the Spirit. He is full of faith. He is made good because of who God is and what God has done for him. And he is a man whose life is filled with the fruit of the gospel. Now, we've seen some of that already, haven't we? In his generous spirit, in his willingness to take Paul under his wing. But I want you to remember the man who is writing this. It's Luke. Luke went on missionary travels with Barnabas. Luke taught and preached with Barnabas. Luke saw... Barnabas, when he was hungry, when he was tired, when he was sick, when he'd had bad days. We might even say that it's very likely that Luke shared a tent with Barnabas as they camped out. If anybody, anybody knew Barnabas as he really was, it was Luke. That makes me think of something else. Do we desire to be the same sort of person in public that we are in private? Do we desire to have our private lives be the lives that are on public display? I fear for too many of us there's a dichotomy there. We think we need to look and act a certain church way. And that's not applicable at the job because, well, that's business. Or it's not applicable in the home because, well, we can't be expected to. But you see, Barnabas was a man whose life had fruit and it was evident everywhere. And he was a man who was aptly named. He was indeed a son of encouragement. Do you notice he comes here in verse 23? He comes and sees the grace of God. And others might come and be skeptical. Others might come and want to straighten things out. Others might come and even be sad because their home church was not growing like the Antioch church. Well, how does Barnabas react to seeing this grace of God? You see it? He is glad. He is rejoicing. He walks in and he says, this is incredible. Oh, I am so glad for you. And immediately he encourages them. Do we practice this? When someone comes up to you and is encouraged and excited because their church is growing, 
Do we look at them and say, well, you know, things are hard at our church. I wish we would grow more. You know, well, you're not doing those gimmicks, are you? What's the reason here? See, are we skeptical? Now, I'm not saying we should embrace every form of action in every church. Of course, that would be unbiblical. But what I'm saying is where we see genuine fruit, lives changed, we should rejoice at the grace of God. Doesn't mean we say, go keep doing whatever you're doing. Because we're going to see here, Barnabas wants to make sure they remain biblical. He doesn't just give them a free hand and say, well, looks good, do what you want. But he is genuinely excited and glad for what is done. And he immediately begins to encourage them to persevere. He exhorts them in verse 23 to remain faithful to the Lord. Now, here is something that we could take to heart. We should all take a page from Barnabas' book. As we see, especially new believers come to the Lord, we should be encouraging them to remain faithful. We should not be assuming that life will be easy for them. Life is hard. Satan does attack. And we need to encourage people to remain faithful. It's also true, perhaps, for those of you that are questioning right now who Jesus Christ is. If you're not quite sure about this Jesus, you see, what Jesus wants from you is everything. He wants you to trust Him with your wife, your kids, your friends, your job, your very eternal life. And when you do that, He will send Barnabases alongside you to help you to remain faithful. But you see, the decision is for now, not for later. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to stick close to Jesus. Not after I graduate. Not after I feel better. Not after things are settled at home. Now is the time to remain faithful and stick to Jesus. Barnabas not only encourages them with this perseverance, he encourages them with motivation. Do you see here he tells them that they are to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The original Greek there is actually with with a purpose of heart. To be focused upon it. It's the same kind of purpose of heart that we take to ourselves in ordinary life. In things that are far less important than the Lord. It's the kind of thing that on a Saturday causes us, as we look at our watch and see that we have forgotten that our college football team starts in five minutes to drop everything we are doing and to go and to get ready to watch. It's the same kind of thing that has our children counting down the days, hours, and minutes until we get to go to Disney World, or until Christmas Eve arrives, or until present opening time is here. It's a purpose of heart. And Barnabas tells me, he tells you, this is the kind of purpose you should have with Jesus. Stand firm for Jesus. But also notice that Barnabas is not a glad-hander. He encourages them also not only to stand firm, but to grow deep. 
And growing in the Lord Jesus Christ is first and foremost a test in humility. I want you to see this here in verse 24 and 25. In the middle of verse 24, And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas is there, he is successful, he is encouraging people. There is a revival occurring, people are being baptized, they are coming into the church. And what does Barnabas do? So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. What? Barnabas, you are the main man here. You are like the Philip of Antioch. You've got everybody looking on your every move and every word. Why are you bringing somebody else in? Why? Do you see what he's doing here? He's deliberately stepping out of the limelight. And he's doing it for a purpose. Because you see, Barnabas knew his gift was a gift of encouragement. He perhaps wasn't the most gifted teacher And he knew that this church needed to remain biblical and needed to have biblical truths. It was not just enough to have immediate emotion and action. They needed to be firmly grounded and grow deep in Jesus. And he thought to himself, who do I know that can teach? Hmm. Saul. I wonder what he's doing. Because you see, it's been about ten years since we last met Saul. Saul is another example of humility. He's laboring in Tarsus and in Cilicia in virtual anonymity. So much so that when Barnabas goes to go get Saul, we need to understand how he is getting him. The word here for to look is a bit deceptive. The Greek word is only used in two other places, one other place, two places in the Bible. And it means to seek after diligently and hard. The only other place it is used, and parents, you'll get it immediately, is it describes the kind of looking that Mary and Joseph do when they notice Jesus has been missing for a couple of days. You ever lose your kid in the mall for five minutes? Oh! If you don't have a heart attack, you have one when you find them. Right? You lose your kid in the mall, you don't just go, well, I wonder, well, but I'll look at this blouse. Oh, there's a pair of shoes. No. What do you do? You look. And then you start to ramp up, and you start to call their name, and then you get louder, and you don't care if anyone can hear you, and you get louder, and you push things aside. And Where are you? That's the kind of looking Barnabas does. He wants to find Saul, and he's having a tough time. Because you see, Saul went back to Tarsus where his family was and I immediately, I would imagine that as he went home and spoke to his father and mother and told them about his conversion and how he had left the Sanhedrin and how he had left Judaism, he immediately received the right boot of ex-fellowship. They said, get out of this house, don't ever come back and don't refer to us as your parents again. We get a glimpse of this when Paul says in Philippians that he lost everything for the sake of Christ. You see, his father would likely be a wealthy man. He was a Roman citizen. That did not come easy. And so 
Barnabas would be looking for Saul. He would be going around. Has anybody seen Saul? And he wouldn't get, oh, yeah. Bug off. Leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with that guy. Whoa, why so snippy? Get out of here. Are you like him? You see, he'd have to search everywhere. And when he finds Saul, he probably has to convince Saul to come with him. Because Saul might be discouraged. He'd lost everything. He's been laboring here in Tarsus for ten years. Jesus himself had told him he had a mission. And for ten years, he waits around in a backwater portion of the world, not seeing it happen. Would that frustrate you? I get frustrated if i got to wait a week and a half for something. But Barnabas convinces Saul to come because he's the only one who can do this. He has the gift. And Saul comes back with him. And what do they do? You see, you might think Saul would be there to get action going, to get them moving, to get some programs underway. No, what they do is they get the church together and they teach them for a year. Can you imagine that? When was the last time you saw a USA Today story on a fast-growing church in which the main thing they did was stop everything and teach for a year? You don't see it. It's very unusual. I will say to you that I think this is what is happening out in the West Coast and in Seattle and Washington and Oregon where young people with piercings and tattoos and all sorts of get-out sit in the pews with their Bibles open and pay rapt attention to the preaching of the Word for an hour and five minutes, as Mark Driscoll preaches. An hour and five minutes with a pulpit, a Bible, and a preacher. No drums, no laser light show, It's simply the teaching of the Word of God. Now, why do they need this? Why do the people at Antioch need this? Why do we need this? It's because we need to be prepared for the work that God has given to us. You see, Jesus has big things planned for Antioch. It's about to become a missionary center. And the only way to be ready to do big things for Jesus is to know your Bible. So do you want to have impact in your community? Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Memorize your Bible. Because it is there that we learn what we are to tell others and how we are to do it. This is our guidebook. This is a church that is in need of encouragement, and they get it. Lastly and briefly... They are also a church that is involved in their community. You know, we talk about this all the time, that we want to be a church that's involved in our community. And I want you to see how this church is. First, as a testimony, and then second, as a help. You see, this church was affected by the teaching they were getting. And that's important because teaching is no good unless it changes us. If we are not changed by the teaching of God, then it is of no good to us. It's not something merely we should hear. It should change how we think, how we act, how we relate to God. It should bring us closer to the Lord. It should want us to be active in His mission. 
That's the whole point of teaching. It's not merely to give us facts. It is to get us on God's mission, to show us God's will that we might do it. And this church will be affected by this. In just two chapters, in Acts 13, we will see them beginning to send out missionaries. And do you know who sends out the missionaries? If you look later at Acts 13.1, you will see it is a list of teachers. Ones who learn and then teach. They begin to send out missionaries. They're also known in their community. They're called Christians here. And at first it is probably a pejorative. The same way that born again used to be. The same way that Puritan used to be. You see, it's the world's way of casting a slur on them. Oh, they're that Jesus party. These bunch of little Jesuses running around. That's how we know. Who are those guys? Oh, those are the Jesus freaks. That's who they are. But you see, they can only be called that because they were so well known and so identified with Jesus. Are you that identified with Jesus? Maybe it shows up in small ways. You go to lunch with some guys from the office and they ask you to pray. You have an opportunity to talk to someone and they say, well, what do you think about this? Does the Bible say anything about this? You see, we are to be known and identified with Jesus. And the identification is so complete, I want you to see something. Who founded the church at Antioch? Well, surely you know. What are the names of the great evangelists at Antioch who converted all the Hellenists? Surely you know who they are. Who are those who are going about building the church up? Do you notice they have no names? They're not identified. No-name Christians are the ones who turn the world upside down. Remember that next time you are tempted to think that God has not blessed you and will not work through you. Lastly, I want you to see that this church is involved as a help in their community. A prophet named Agabus comes and he says there's going to be a worldwide famine. And so, therefore, what happens is, is the church at Antioch calls a congregational meeting, decides what they need to do is to set up a separate, segregated savings account, and what they need to do is to get several years' worth of finances preserved for the church at Antioch. Right? That's how often it's done today. Do you remember Y2K? Do you remember what Christians did? Or at least some of them? They bought generators for themselves. They stacked up food for themselves. They found ways to hoard gold and other things for themselves. You see, because they became afraid But you see, this church sees an opportunity. They see hardship as an opportunity to show gospel love. And they say, there are hard times here. We better give our money away. Can you believe that? Would we act like that? 
would we go out on a limb for others? You see, that's what the gospel does for you. It not only shows you the the need that is out there, it allows you to trust on God. This is a church that is changed. And it is a church that we will see will radically change the world. But never forget, this is really also just an ordinary church. It's not that different from us. You see, we're a church that is in the hands of God. We're a church that is at times in need of encouragement. And we are a church that must be in our community. That's how we see the kingdom of God go forward. 